tells you to read, we are in Acts chapter 17, verses 22 through 34. Uh, certainly there is uh, a lot of valuable information, uh, inspired information, this text that we could unpack this morning, which we will not actually do. And the reason why we will not actually unpack all of it is because there's way too much. We'd be here all day. We could break it down. I thought about breaking it down into three or four messages, um, but I will leave it for you to continue the study. We're going to survey it and try to get the big picture so that you can see all the little intricacies within the text um, afterwards, if that's all right with you. If it's not all right with you, well, oh well, we've got to deal with that. In any case, before we get started, let's have a word of prayer, and then we can uh, jump into the text. Lord, help us again this morning as we open your word. I pray that you will help us to pay attention. Your spirit will keep us uh, focused and attentive and challenged and encouraged. I pray your spirit will work in our lives, uh, not merely to help us stay in attention, but that you will soften our hearts to your truth and that you will supernaturally move us to worship and to glory in you and glorify you in our lives. Help us this morning as we wrestle with this text. In your name I pray. Amen. Let me say as we jump into the text, this is uh, this text we're looking at today is actually quite a uh, famous text, if I may put it that way. Uh, it may not be famous with a lot of people or common with a lot of people, but it has been a, uh, a passage that is studied a lot over the over the uh, years, millennia. Uh, it has become very popular in the last probably 40 or 50 years in academia, Christian academia that is. Um, we are not going to uh, dabble in much of that this morning uh, because I think there's a, a more important thing to understand or things to understand in this study uh, than that. We obviously have Paul in Athens this morning. Um, couple things that I think are really interesting, if I may just broad brush it real quickly before we go through the text itself, is this. One of the things I hear from Christians a lot is, um, Steve, I, I, I'm not sure though, I, I hear the call to scriptures and I hear the call in your messages regularly about evangelizing and proclaiming Christ to a lost and dying world. That's pretty clear in the scriptures, isn't it? The call for that, right? But the thing I continue to hear, and I've mentioned this many times in the past, the thing I, I, I keep hearing from people is, but I don't, what do you think? No. Know what to, say. what to say, right? I don't know what to say. Now, at a very important level, I disagree with everybody who says that they're a true Christian. At a very basic and important way, I disagree with that statement. Because if you're saved, you had to understand the gospel. And if you understand the gospel, then you know what to communicate. If the gospel was used by the Holy Spirit to make you alive and bring you to salvation by grace through faith alone, Ephesians chapter 2, then you do know. Does that make sense? And we know in the history of the scriptures, if we read the storyline of the scriptures, we know there were plenty of people who knew almost nothing, right? And yet they did what? They proclaimed Christ, didn't they? So we know that's true. So we know that argument is invalid, right? From the, right from the, right the get-go. Does that make sense? 
If you've been saved, you know the gospel. The gospel has affected your life and is continuing to affect your life if you're truly saved, right? Because he who began the good work in you will continue to perfect you to the day of Jesus Christ. Therefore, the gospel didn't just work at some point in time in the past, but it's continuing to work by the Spirit in your lives in the present and into the future to the time we go home to be with Jesus. And the gospel will even work in our lives even then in glory. So it's an invalid argument to say, I don't know what to say. In the text this morning, what I would argue what we discover probably more, more completely than you'll find pretty much anywhere else in the scriptures, at least in, in, the, in the epistles, is a presentation of the gospel that has, if I may put it this way, all the basics. It is a rich, rich study in the presentation of the gospel. And I think we'll see that as we work our way through. It is a very powerful, poignant presentation of the gospel. In fact, it's probably one of the longest ones in the New Testament as you know, describing that presentation. Um, and so as we work our way through this, I think one of, the, one of the important things that we can observe is all the various points that, that, that Paul makes, all the various things he has to say, because they, every single one of them are essential to the gospel. Every single one of them. And it becomes, as a result, an incredibly valuable tool for that purpose. Now, secondly, I would argue that this presentation by Paul is not just a great study to prepare you to evangelize well. This passage, verse 22 through 34, is, I mean, you will never unring all of the theology that's in there, no matter how hard you twist it. It is just dripping, saturated with deep, wonderful theology of the Godhead. It is loaded. It is a great text. If you're wondering, where do I start in studying the the, the uh, understanding of development, understanding of God, what a great place to start. What I mean by that is, you start here and you read. You can read a phrase or a sentence and ask yourself one really simple question. Where did Paul get that from? Where did Paul get that statement from? And you take that question and you begin to search the scriptures. And you will start to discover depths of an understanding of the Godhead and of salvation and of God's working among men that you have never comprehended before. It's that valuable of a text. I hate to say this, but most of the handling of this text has not been along that line. And I think that's what really is important about this text. So Tom read it this morning. A couple of things I want to point out. You'll notice firstly, as we've seen in the in the study up to this point in time last week, is that Paul's in Athens. And the things we talked about last week about Athens is it's very much a religious city. It's very much a 
philosophical city. They were steeped in Greek philosophy, as well as all of the Greek and Roman uh, gods and types of worship. So they were thoroughly saturated in all of this. And Paul comes to this city from Berea, and he begins to minister that we saw last week. As he ministers, as we saw last week, they want to hear more, so they, they take him uh, to the era, 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 however you say it, my mind just went, blah, blah, blah. never happened to you? Not you, Charles. My How do you pronounce it again? Areopagus. Areopagus. There we my go. mind stays there. Wow. It doesn't go there. It yeah, never, there. never, never leaves, right? <laughs> anyway, they say they want to take him there, so they take him there. And by the way, again, as I said last week, this is not against his will. He freely goes. This is not an arrest situation. This is him going at, at, in free will to go there because it's another opportunity for him to proclaim the gospel. You'll see he gets there in, in verse 22. It says in verse 22, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. There's been a lot of debate on verse 22. We've got to stop and, and point it out before we, we move beyond it, because if you have a King James Version, it says something very different there, doesn't it, doesn't it uh, Jim? Superstitious, exactly. And Ken, yours does too, right? Verse 22? No, I observe uh, you're very religious. Religion, okay, so you don't have the King James. Well, you did. In, in the King James, it says superstitious. In just about every other translation, it says religious. So it sounds like a radical difference, right? Very religious, very superstitious. And there's been a lot of debate on... On, on how the word that is used there should be translated. All your modern translations have translated it religious. The King James alone, I believe, translated it very superstitious. And again, the word itself can be translated either way. So it does beg the question, why did the King James translate? I'm not... I'm not arguing for King James or against in this case. I'm just using an example because I think it's a really important one. Why did the King James translate it superstitious and all the rest of the translations translate it religious? And I think there's a really good reason why the two camps translated the way they did. And I think there is a case to be made for both of them. But I want to identify it so we can see why. Because it's obviously really a radical difference, isn't it? Would everybody agree that it's a radical difference? It is. It's a radical difference. The, the question, uh, let me change this way. The difference in translation comes about because of how the translators read the rest of the text from 22 through 34. If you read the the text from 22 through 34 as Paul being very respectful and being very careful, then you would find yourself translating it into the word religious. If, on the other hand, you read 22 through 34 and you see Paul being somewhat confrontive, 
aggressive, blunt, then you will find yourself translating the word into the word superstitious. Now, I have to be honest with you. As I read the text, superstitious makes a little bit more sense to me. It really does. Is your translation translated superstitious? No, I was just flipping through a whole bunch on the thing. There's actually about six that do it as oh, is superstitious. It? Okay. There are rare ones. And there's also one that does it as over-religious. Over-religious, yes. I thought that's an interesting yeah, one. Yeah. Young's does that. But it, it is intriguing that if you read the rest of the text, 22 through 34, again, and you see it as Paul being very respectful and careful and, and all the rest, and you're going to find yourself translating it into more religious like the ESV does. Again, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. If you see him being more confrontive, you will see it, you'll see it, you'll tend to translate it, and, and maybe even blunt, you're going to tend to see it more in the King James style of, again, superstitious. I'll be honest with you, as I read the text, I think it falls more in the superstitious than it does the religious. I do. I don't think Paul is being very respectful and gentle. I think if you truly understand the text, as I'm going to lay it out for you here, I think he's being really aggressive and blunt. And I think he's he's calling spade a spade in a lot of really, really significant ways. So anyway, verse 22 again. So Paul, staying in the midst of the area, got arrow. Ario, yeah, that one. Ariopagus. Wow, isn't it funny how you, you can just not be able to say a word all of a sudden? It's a concussion. I'm going to blame it on the concussion. <laughs> <laughs> Said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you were very religious. And we know the story. We already saw it last week. We talked about it, how they have all sorts of, of temples. They all have all sorts of of uh, idols, they're worshiping all sorts of different gods, and they're bowing down regularly and continually, and they're always studying the things of philosophy and religion and trying to figure things out. As a matter of fact, the end of 21, we found it's what they do. They just sit around all the time talking about stuff, right? Whether it's philosophy or theology, they're always trying to come up with something new. It sounds kind of like today, doesn't it? Always trying to come up with something new. So whether it is very religious or very superstitious, we'll see as we work our way through. But we know that they're very caught up with all of this. And there's many, many gods. Now what I would argue, the way we need to understand everything Paul says from 23 and following, all the way through to the end of his gospel presentation, is this. What Paul is very specifically and very pointedly doing, every single phrase, every single sentence, is it's a complete comparison slash contrast. It's very important we see this. This is why I say I think he's being more confrontive than we want, want to make it out to be. In every single statement he's going to make, he's drawing probably not so much a comparison, but a contrast between either individual or a grouping of some of their gods 
and Paul's God, the true God. Now, he doesn't do it out bluntly out in the open as in, as in, well, you believe this, but God is this. But that's the point. In saying God is this, he is saying your God who you think does that doesn't. And by the way, all your gods, individually and combined, don't match their claims with the truth. That's what he's doing every step of the way. Every single phrase, every single point, every single sentence is, this is who God really is, and he trumps everything else. Does that make sense? That's what he's doing. And it's very blunt. You can see it right away. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I pass along and observe the objects of your worship, I found also an, an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Now certainly it starts out like very, very nice, right? Basically he says right after that, what therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. Okay, so he starts out seemingly very, hey, I want to give you, I want to, I want to tell you something about somebody, someone you already worship, but you don't know. And by the way, there's no question that was the case with the Athens because they, they were so full of gods. They, they had so many different gods, but because they're finite gods, none of them are all powerful. By the, by the Greeks' own perspective, they couldn't have an all-powerful God. Because ultimately, who was all-powerful was man. All of the gods just did something, something good, but, but yeah, they ultimately were, they had so many flaws. Outside of the one thing they did, they had so many flaws, it was fatal. And the idea was that people didn't have all these incredibly fatal flaws. But ultimately, at the end of the day, no matter how many gods you got, there are things you're missing. Does that make sense? There's things you're missing. And so what the Greeks did is they established an altar to an unknown god. And they worshipped an unknown god as well with the idea that it may be one, it may be 50, it may be 500, but we want to make sure we get all bases covered. And that's why they had it. And so Paul says again, verse 23... What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So basically what Paul says, I'm going to tell you who the unknown God is. Again, what, the way Paul says it is really a setup. It's a complete setup. Because in their thinking, what do we just say? Every God is infinite or finite. They're all finite. So Paul's going to tell them about another finite God that fits into this little niche that they haven't figured out yet. But it's just a niche God. That's what they're thinking. One more niche that we can add in. And we can just take the unknown word off and put the word in that's, that's named as. Oh, we're okay with that. A little niche of everything. Yeah. Verse 24. The immediate thing that Paul does, notice where he starts. The God who made the world and everything in it. 
being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Stop there. It's intriguing what Paul does and where he starts. Did you catch what he said? The God who made the world and everything in it. Yes! The very first thing Paul says, the very first place Paul goes, is to say right into their faces, very bluntly, this is not a niche God. You see, ultimately, the gods of the Greeks were created beings as well. And where Paul starts... In effect, he gets right up in their face right in the get-go, and he says, he's not created. He created all things. In other words, everything that exists, exists because of and through him. Does that make sense? In other words, he's all-encompassing in every way. The obvious implication right from the get-go, from Paul's opening statement, is to the Greeks, what do you need all the rest of them for? That's his first statement. Isn't it? His absolute first statement. I want to read it again, verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, is that an exclusive statement? Being Lord of heaven and earth. What else is there besides heaven and earth? There's nothing. That's what Paul declares to them. He just excluded all of their gods in the very first opening statement. He, in the opening statement, denied the very existence of of all the rest of the gods. Lord of heaven and earth. It's an exclusive statement. It's absolutely exclusive. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds like kind of in your face. Doesn't it? Just a little bit? Blunt? Just a little bit? Now, it's interesting. I'm pausing there at the end of uh, verse, or before we get to the end of verse 25, and I want to point some two things out to you. Because it's really important we get these before we get any further. Two things. Number one, it's really simple. I don't believe that, that this is an exact word-for-word -word recording of Paul's message. I don't think it is. First of all, it's too short. That's not Paul's way. We know that, right? And one time he preached all night, so he fell out of the window. But even historically, we know that preaching... And proclaiming back then went for hours. So, and we also know they didn't have computers and phones to record it. So it's a synopsis. Does that make sense? It's a synopsis of his message. We don't know how long it went. It could have gone for hours. Most likely did. That's number one. Number two, observation. I think we really need to make, even though... I believe, and I think I can be 100% sure, that this is not an actual word-for-word -word presentation. There's probably much more verbose than this. The one thing that I find interesting 
And I'm going to say it this way, that it may, it may cause some of you to go, huh? It may cause some of you to react negatively to what I'm about to say, but I think it's important we say it. The one thing that is missing in the entire passage, not just the opening statement, but the entire passage, there's something really dramatic missing. In every step, every phrase, every sentence, every paragraph, there's something dramatic missing. And it's not just missing in this text. It's missing everywhere. It's missing everywhere in the book of Acts. And it's missing in Jesus' gospel presentations. It's missing in the Old Testament prophets' presentations. It's missing everywhere. You know what's missing? Here's what's missing. You don't find anywhere in this text this. Let me start in verse 24 again. Um, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth. Now let me explain to you and prove to you how I know that this is true. Did you catch that last part I said? It is intriguing that the... Yes. It's, it, yes. It is declarative. I want, it's very important we see this. Paul's message from beginning to end throughout this entire text is declarative. Jesus did the same thing, didn't he? The Father and I are one. Did he say, now let me work through this and prove it to you? No, he, said, he just said, Father and I are one. That's what happened. And you see that in the Old Testament as well. When, when, when the prophets get up and proclaim the message of God, they should proclaim the message of God. When Paul elsewhere, when Peter, for example, when Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost, you don't find him attempting to prove it. He declares it. Does that make sense? He declares it. And you find this every step of the way. Look back to Acts 14. You don't have to right now, but look back to Acts 14. You see it again in Acts 14. You jump forward to other places in Acts. When he stands in front of Agrippa, and when he stands in front of Felix, and when he stands in front of Festus. You see it again, and again, and again. You see the proclamation, the declaration. It's very important we we recognize this, friends. It's crucial that we recognize this. The declaration of the truth. It seems that from Paul's perspective, if I may be blunt about this, it seems to me in Paul's perspective, in Jesus' perspective, in Peter's and, 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 and James and, and John and the Old Testament prophets' perspective, universally it seems that their perspective is when God makes them alive, Something, what, changes. Something happens. Something happens. Doesn't it? Something dramatic happens. They proclaim Christ. And something dramatic happens with some, right? 
But that was a lot. No sum. And what you find here, starting off the bat in verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, he doesn't, he doesn't in any way prove it. He declares it. The God, again, who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. What did he just do in the last part of verse 24? Is that, is that a contrast? Is that an absolute contrast? Is it a blunt contrast? Is it a painful contrast? It has to be. It is brutally painful. Because you know what Paul just did? Paul just said to the people in Athens, and remember where he's at. He's where all the altars and idols are. And he says to them, this God that I am declaring to you, this God that I am proclaiming to you is not like any of these. I can almost picture Paul. I can almost picture him going like this. This God I'm proclaiming to you, he's not like that one. Not like that one. Not like that one. Or 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 that one. He's not like any of these. It's just summed up in the statement that we see here. At the end of 24. Does not live in temples made by man. And what's the implication of living in temples made by man? The implication is he's dependent on, on these, all these other ones are dependent upon the man who does what? Builds the place. These other gods are dependent upon the builder. What did he do in 24? He already declared that God is the builder. God is the builder. So therefore, he's not, unlike absolute contrast, unlike every other God you worship, he's not dependent upon the builder. He is the builder of all things. In heaven and on earth. Therefore, he does not live in anything built by man. He's not constrained or controlled or limited by that. Could I just stop on verse 24 for just a second? Remember what I said at the beginning? It's a, this is a great tool to challenge us with regard to evangelism. Where's Paul starting off with dealing with? Idolatry. Isn't that where he starts? He starts out talking about idolatry, doesn't he? And the wrongness and sinfulness of idolatry. Doesn't he? Now, I know the world today doesn't have any problems with idolatry, so we can't really use that, right? Right? Yeah, we can't use that today because they don't have that problem anymore. I mean, nobody's nobody's idolatrous anymore, are we? What's that? Except for yesterday? Oh, it ended yesterday. <laughs> evident. <laughs> no, we know. You know, maybe we don't build temples and altars as... They did back in that day, but we know that nothing's changed, right? Why? Because God made us to be worshiping people. Hasn't he? 
we got to worship something. I find it very instructive that Paul starts out contrasting the true God with all the idols. And I wonder, I wonder, and I'm not really, I'm being facetious when I say I wonder. I wonder if maybe that's where we ought to start. Because you know, we learn things in the contrast, right? And what's Paul doing? The very first thing he does is go to the contrast. You're worshiping people, superstitious people. And I want to compare and contrast your superstitions, your worship systems, with God. And I want to show you your idols, where they really are. Yeah, I have for years in my evangelism used this as an example and really tried to use this as a starting point. Because have you ever met anybody who actually thinks they're really evil? I've met a few, but not many. Most people think they're what? They're good, right? Most people think they're good people. And so you, know I gotta, you know what I do most times when I talk to people who are lost about, about Jesus? I start talking about their idols. I do. And I know it's confrontive. Because I start asking, I, I start probing, trying to figure out what their idols are. You know why? So I can show how their idols have failed them. And how they're not like God. So that I can show them that as a result, well, you know, God says this. This is who God is in contrast to what you're clinging to. In absolute contrast to what you're clinging to, this is who God is. And I oftentimes get people, I don't believe in God. I can buy that for a dollar. It doesn't surprise me because if you believe God, you wouldn't be doing this. Does that make sense? If you believe God, you wouldn't be doing this, or clinging to that, or worshiping over there. Believe in God, those wouldn't be happening. But I'm going to tell you what God says about himself. Who God is. And it's going to be an absolute contrast to all of that. And that's exactly where Paul goes. And so he starts out his opening statement in verse 24 as an all-encompassing, God is greater or lesser than all their gods. He's greater than each one, but also all of them combined, right? He's greater than, infinitely greater than. Goes on to um, verse 25. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. What an interesting, again, contrast number three now, isn't it? I'm going to stop now from counting them because I'm going to lose track. <laughs> we had one and two in verse 24, verse three, here, nor is he served by human hands. And again, an absolute contrast to all the gods that they had there in Athens. They're all created by man. He's going to talk about that a little bit. They're created by man, right? Silver, wood, stone, gold, plated, carved, shaped, dusted, cared for. Every step of the way. Does that make sense? And here, what Paul declares, and again, you've got to understand it, in this blunt contrast, 
nor is he, unlike all of your gods, served by human hands as though he needed anything. Because ultimately, every one of their gods and every one of every god that ever ever thought was thought to exist is always finite. So ultimately, it always needs some help from man. But in this case, he is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Do you recognize the declarative statement there again? It's simply declarative. I'm going to add a, another point to it. I gave you two points already uh, in, the, in that last statement. But here's a third point. Do you notice that everything he is saying is just dripping with scripture elsewhere? Do you recognize this? Just for example, let me just go back real quick. 24. The God who made the world and everything in it. Is that declared in the scriptures? Pretty clear, isn't it? Being Lord of heaven and earth, declared anywhere in scriptures? Oh yeah, absolutely. Does not live in temples made by man? Is that been declared in scriptures? I mean, if you're not sure about that, Isaiah. <laughs> really clear. Nor is, he, nor is he served, verse 25, by human hands as though he needed anything. Is that declared in the scripture? Like every page? Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, is that declared in the scriptures? Yes. Why am I making this point? Because all Paul is doing from Third, from 22 through 34, all he's doing, except for two exceptions, we're going to talk about them in a second, except for two exceptions, all he is doing is giving them the scriptures. Isn't he? That's all he's doing. He's presenting the scriptures to them. Because certainly, the contrast is pretty clear. There is no God, who, other God, God that is, that is not in need of anything. And there's no God who gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God alone. Verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. We stop there at the end of verse 26. What do we find about that Paul is declaring again, declaring about God? What's he declaring? He made from one man, Adam, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. He's the creator solely. You know what it says? He is solely the creator of all mankind, and as creator, he didn't just create, but what did he do? He, um, what did you say, Tom? Yes. He determined or decreed, allotted the periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. And what that means is, is it's an all-encompassing. It's a determining of when people will be born where people will be born, where people will live, where people will work, who people will marry, 
How many children people will have or not have? Boundaries of the empires of the time. Bounding boundaries of the very empires and the times and existences of those empires. During an era when there seemed to be no limit. Yes. Again, an absolute contrast to all the gods, individually and the conglomerate of all of them. An absolute contrast. Your gods have failed you, is the implication. Your gods have made plenty of promises and have not kept any of them. But the true God is the God who has done And again, I ask you this question. Is Paul taking that out of thin air? Is he pulling verse 26 out of philosophy? He is pulling it out of the scriptures. This is pure, unadulterated theology. Biblical theology. That's what we have here. Very important we see it. Verse 27. This gets really interesting. I'm going to read verse 26 again as we get into verse 27. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. This is an intriguing statement. Verse 27 is really intriguing. It's a purpose statement. That's what the word that is there for. It's a purpose statement Paul is giving. He's done all these things that I have, and here's the operative word, that I have declared because the scriptures have declared them. He's done all these things that, or so that, purpose statement, they should seek God. Stop there for a second. Are the Greeks... Seeking God. Yes, they're seeking God's. Why? Because it's hardwired into them. Does that make sense? It's hardwired into them to seek a sovereign being. But the best they can do is make non-sovereign, finite beings that are dependent upon man. Right? But he designed all of this purpose statement that they should seek God. And they're doing it really well. And yet really poorly, aren't they? Fatally, they're doing it. And then he throws this next statement into it. And perhaps feel their way toward him and find them. Find him. That's a weird statement, isn't it? That's a really weird statement. And perhaps... Feel their way toward him and find him. But if you think about the statement, it makes complete sense. If you're, think about it for a second. If you're feeling your way towards something, why are you feeling your way towards something? You can't see. Because you can't see. So you're blindingly or blindly groping, that's the point. The, the Athenians 
that Paul is addressing are people who are clearly seeking God. Aren't they? No, they're seeking Him fatally. Because without the Spirit working in their life, they will always create finite, imperfect lives. Does that make sense? What they are, they are people in the darkness. And they're feeling their way around. Right? Hoping to find him. You know what Paul is talking about? He's talking about humanity. The natural state of man is to, on the one hand, rebel against the true God, right? We've despised and rejected him. Correct? Isaiah 53. But on the other side of the coin, it's not that we've despised and rejected him and therefore live godless lives. No, we can't help but grow blindingly. We can't help it. Every person you ever meet is feeling their way to try to find God. They all are. I mean, Tom mentioned it briefly, kind of half tongue in cheek. But this week we've seen it, haven't we? My goodness, there are people gropingly, feelingly, blindly trying to find the answer, aren't they? It's incredible. Thinking maybe this will solve our, our problems. Maybe that will solve our problems. Maybe this God will work. They would never call them gods anymore because that's not acceptable. But you get my point. Nothing has changed. And perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. But if we're feeling our way to find God, are we going to find him? No. If we are blindingly feeling our way to, toward God, will we find him? The answer is no. So why would Paul say this in verse 27? Because of what he says next. The word yet is really important. Because he says, yet, he is actually not far from each one of us. What his point is, is that that feeling idea, the feeling activity, feeling toward him, is feeling toward a God who is far away. Impossible. To reach. Impossible. What you find here is Paul is referencing the, the Athenians the same way that the Old Testament, God used one of the prophets to, to reference God in light of the Jewish people when he said, you're trying all these things to solve your problems, all the gods and all the rest, all your solutions and yet, is there not a balm in Gilead? That's what, that's, what the, that's what the prophet says. Is there no balm in Gilead? It's very interesting what the, what the prophet is saying. The balm that was in Gilead was an eye balm, an eye salve, to help you who could not see to be able to see. And his argument when he says, is there no balm in Gilead? Gilead's right next door. It's near. 
But what are the people, the Jewish people, doing? They're blindly feeling everywhere but toward the metaphorical balm, Gilead. And that's why Paul says here, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Which also, by the way, harkens to the end of Deuteronomy. Don't say who is, who is able to go up in heaven and get it for us. That's what Moses says. Because he's near. And if he is who Paul has said he is at this point in time, he is near, isn't he? Isn't he? He absolutely is. But the feeling will never get you there. Even though you are created, every single person was created to seek God, that seeking blindly will never get you there. Do you, do you get the point so far? This is really a rich presentation of the gospel. It's theological. It will never, ever get you there. You're blind, Paul is saying. And you think he's far away. But he's not. He is near. To each of us. He's actually not far from each of us. And then he goes into verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being. Could I just, before we discuss verse 29 more deeply, or 28 more deeply, could I just make the statement real quickly, or the question, and ask the question, is that from the teachings of the scripture? Do the scriptures teach those things? Oh my goodness, they drip out of all the pages, do they not? Now there is some discussion about the beginning of verse 28, in him we live and move and have our being, that that may perhaps be written by a Greek poet, by an Athenian poet. And there is a possibility, although they're not really sure, but it could have been actually words written by a Greek poet. But even if it was, it is merely a statement, right? Yeah, it could be. It could very well be that person, although they're not really sure. They're not exactly. The next statement they know came from a certain a certain poet. This one they think did, but they don't really know. Okay, they're guessing somewhat on the first one. But the simple reality is, when you read the statement, "In him we live, live and move and have our being," does that ooze out of the pages of Scripture? The answer is absolutely. It drifts everywhere, doesn't it? Why does Paul, if he does, why does he quote the, the poet here in this text? Why does he do that? Well, I think there's some really good reasons why he would do that. I think, I think there's some really excellent reasons like that. It's not the only place this, this kind of thing happens. It happens elsewhere in Acts. Um, the book of Philippians chapter 2 is a quote from an a, a old old church hymn of the first century, most likely, for example. And because the, the scripture writers puts it in the scripture, it becomes inspired once they put it into the scriptures. But why would he do this? In him we live and move and have our being, if he is indeed quoting a poet of their time, maybe a little earlier in their time, but a Greek poet. Well, the reason why he's doing it is he's, is he's pointing out to them everything I've said about him, if you, if you read it from, from 22 on, is, isn't this a, summary, a, summary, a summation of what he said? 
so far? It really is a summation of the superiority of God, isn't it? For in him we live and move and have our being. It certainly sums up everything he said. So why would he, why would he say that? Because what he's doing is he's reinforcing the statement he just made, that they should seek God. Here's this unsaved poet demonstrating, even in his poetry, that it's hardwired into man to seek God. Hardwired by the Creator. And certainly it is true, it drips out of the page of the Scripture. In Him we live and move and have our being. It's kind of like sometimes I'll, I'll be in a discussion with somebody and they'll say something. Or even, say for example, maybe somebody else they respect says something. And in the midst of our discussion, we're going back and forth on something. And I'll say, well, even so-and-so says this. I mean, it's so basic. Even this person that you respect says this. I'm not saying that because this person says it, it's true. It just shows that what I've been saying is really true. Then he goes on in, in, the, in verse 28 and says, as even some of your own poets have said, and this one we know comes from a, from a Greek poet of that era, or maybe a little bit before, for we are indeed his offspring. For we indeed are his offspring. Which, again, he's already been arguing. So you can come to verse 29, and again, that's, does that pour out of the scriptures? We're all made in the image of God. We're all made in the image of God. It's really clear. Yeah. It's really clear in the scriptures. It's a Paul, even, even with, with these unsaved people, they're proclaiming the truths of the scripture imperfectly, and they're missing the point, but they're proclaiming it. Have you ever heard someone say something that is profoundly biblical, even though they're lost? And they go, and there's scripture. They don't even realize it. It may not be word for word, but they declared something theologically accurate. You're like, where did you get that from? And you know, it's the spirit at work in spite of, you know? It always is. Verse 29, then being God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Where did Paul just go again? He went right back to their idols. He is, he's totally decimating. Is he not? He's totally decimating their entire worship system in every way. Because the idols were central to the Greek worship. And Paul is unabashed in dismantling this. Because he knows that it's desperate for the dismantling to take place. I've said this many times. You've heard me say it before. And I'll say it again. And other people have said it as well. It's not unique to me. Certainly, it's been all through time. There is no good news in the gospel without first there being what? Bad news. And we best not dress up that bad news. Because once again, what do we see? There's no dressing up the bad news here, is there? It's not being cleaned up and dressed up at all. If Paul didn't get the point across in the beginning statements about idolatry, he certainly gets it across here. Being then God's offspring, the consequence of being God's offspring is we ought not to think that the divine being is like anything like this stuff. 
got to think it's nothing. The, the, the true God, the divine being, should be nothing like these things. It's nothing. He's nothing like gold or silver or stone. He's nothing like an image formed by the art. And I love the term Paul uses here. Imaginations. I can only think of two words I could put in here at this point. Ouch and oof. Right? That's the only thing I can think of. I mean, it's painful. Imaginations? He just declared what? You made them all up. You made them all up! They're all figments of your imagination. I mean, it's pretty blunt talk. It's one of these things I have real trouble with most gospel presentations. There's no bluntness. There's no bad news. Or if there's any bad news at all, it's really generic. Like, you know you sinned. And I always love the one, well, what do you mean I sinned? Well, have you ever stolen a pencil from, from work? It's like, serious? Really? Paul goes where? Idolatry. He goes to, not pencils at work, he goes to idolatry and imaginations of man. It's painful. And it must be painful. It has to be offensive. The gospel is offensive. The truth of God is offensive, friends. Verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Now he comes to this shift. Right? The dramatic shift. Up to this point in time, it's been good news or bad news? What do you say? It's all bad news, isn't it? It's all coming out of the scriptures. It's pouring out of the scriptures. It's all dripping, saturated with the scriptures. All bad news. And he brings it down to the point where he says in verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked. I want to stop on that one. What is he talking about? He's saying to the people of Athens, he said, listen, God has been, what's the King James word, Jim? Not there. Not there. You won't find it there. Long suffering. suffering right? Don't mean to put you on the spot there, Jim. I know you're looking at the text. It's not in the text. God has been long suffering, has he not? My goodness, he has. In Paul's day, you talk about the entire Old Testament era, been long-suffering to their ignorance. What does that mean? Well, the vast majority of the world knew nothing about God, did they? Yet they still worshipped, didn't they? Remember, Paul's in Athens. They're hearing the gospel for the first time. He overlooked all the ignorance. Athens is an old city at this point in time. This whole time, they've been worshipping other gods. They've been absolutely ignorant of the truth, although they knew that God existed. Romans 1 tells us that. They just suppressed it on righteousness. And he says, God overlooked those times. That overlooking does not mean he didn't account it against them. It means he was long-suffering. He put up with it for a long period of time. But then Paul says something dramatically different in 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked. That is, he, he allowed it to continue. He was long-suffering. But then Paul says, but what? 
What's the next word? Now. Hey, it's a long time when God was patient. But Paul says, but now he commands. What right does God have to command? What, what right does God have to command? Verse 22 through 29 gives him the right to command. Does that make sense? Paul's declarative inspired statements here gives him the right to command. Not Paul's statements, but they're inspired by the Spirit. But those truths that Paul's are declaring gives him uniquely, among all these gods, gives the true God uniquely the right to command, and not just to command, but to command now. Does that make sense? Now. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Repent of what? Well, it's really clear. Paul spent enough time laying out all the various sins, right? And they're really specific and really painful. It's not, again, it's not pencils. It's the very core of their life stuff, isn't it? He zeroes in on the core of their life in the gospel presentation and wrecks the core of their life. And he says, it is now commanded by God for all people everywhere to repent. And repent, of course, means to turn away from what? What's Paul declared them to repent from? To all this worship, this idolatry, and there's there, there, all, the, all the ramifications of that, right? It's being driven by a heart that's dark, correct? And to repent from that and to, and by the way, that's all sinful, right? It's all sinful. And turn to the living God. It's a repent from, repent to. It's not a repent from and then live life. This is really, I hear people say all the time, well, no, repentance is not repent, repent. Really clearly not a repent from and repent to, or is it really clearly repent from and repent to, isn't it? Paul is not saying, well, let me tell you about the true God, blah, 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 blah. In contrast, your craziness here, your superstitions. So now I want you to repent from those gods. Oh, you do? Ah, great. See you guys later. That's not what he does. He's saying repent from these idolatrous ways from your heart, because not the idol, it's your heart, you personally repent from and repent toward. And you're going to see it in just a second. But now he calls every uh, all people everywhere to repent. And notice what he says next, verse 31, because he has fixed a day on which he will what? Judge the world, Judge the world in righteousness. What did he just declare? In effect, he just declared they were unrighteous. And judgment's coming. And judgment's coming. And that judgment's going to be absolutely righteous. And if they're absolutely unrighteous, which he's declared pretty clearly, and the true God is absolutely righteous, and there's coming a time when judgment's coming, and he's going to mete out justice, the justice is obviously going to be meted out on the, on the unrighteous, which is them. Does that make sense? The implication right now is you better turn to the righteous one, right? That's the repentance too. 
He's going to judge the world in righteousness. Notice what it says, on a day which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man who he has appointed, and of this man he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Who is he talking about? Jesus Christ. He's saying he's going to judge righteously in righteousness, judge the world in righteousness, and that judgment of God is going to be done by Jesus. Now again, remember I said this is a summation. Because I've read a lot of commentaries on this text, and it's amazing how many say this, that this passage doesn't talk about Jesus at all. I'm like, what? What are you talking about? It doesn't talk about Jesus. Remembering it's just a summation. He's talking about Jesus, isn't he? It's clear he's talking about Jesus. Sometimes commentators make my head hurt. Because sometimes it's just so obvious. Like, what are you talking about? By a man who he's appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, again, being a summation, I would present to you that it, it would, I would find it highly unlikely that when he says here, by raising him from the dead, he didn't talk to him about the purpose for the raising from the dead. Again, summation. It doesn't make any sense for him not to talk about the reason, especially when you read Paul's writings. You know that he's all about the reason for Christ rising from the dead. Read Romans if you don't believe that. So I would argue he did talk about Jesus as, as the person Jesus, and he did talk about the reason for the rising from the dead. But the whole point is he's presenting this really deep theology to them. And of this he has given assurance. That is, the truth of the matter is found where? The scriptural revelation about his resurrection. Now, notice the words I chose. I chose them very purposefully. The scriptural revelation of his resurrection. That's where, he's been, that's where he's been all along. He's been talking about the scriptures all along. The divine revelation. Every single step of the way. Can I just stop on this for a second? And just say, isn't it intriguing? How he's used the scriptures? Isn't it powerful? How he's shaken the theology out of the scriptures and presented it to the people. What a great example. What a great place to recognize a phenomenal biblical presentation of the gospel. We would do well, if I could pause on this for a second, we, I'm about done, but we would do well to take this text as I've just scratched the surface, and go point by point, phrase by phrase, sentence by sentence, and ask ourselves, where is that shown and spoken of and taught in the scriptures? We would do well. We would find ourselves deeply amazed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We would find the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, moving mightily in us. 
we would find, I suspect, a holy boldness like we've never had before. To be able to confidently say, thus saith the Lord. See, that's what we fear. I find most people are afraid of saying, thus saith the Lord, because people say, well, I don't believe in God. Oh, I don't have to say it. Yes, you do. I hear it all the time, people, well, you know, when I say, well, the Bible says, and they say, well, 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 I don't believe the Bible. I don't know what to say then. You know what you say? As Paul did, as Peter did, as John did, as Jesus did, as the Old Testament prophets did, you know what you say? You say what well, the Bible says. <laughs> you know why I say that? Because I'm absolutely convinced when the Spirit moves in someone's life, I'm absolutely convinced all those objections fade away. Because the Spirit begins to bear witness with their spirit. That's what happens. It does. There is not a confidence in the Scriptures today like there should be. And along with that, since there's not a confidence in the Scriptures, there's not a competence in the Scriptures like there should be. The competence, or lack thereof, is direct corollary to confidence. It's crucial that we get that. Every step of the way, 22 through 34, what is he doing? He's proclaiming the scriptures. And that's all he's doing. He's declaring them over and over and over again. It is interesting. He wraps it up with, in verse 31, with a statement, the assurance to all by raising it from the dead, the resurrection. But it, 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 so it, it's all tied into the resurrection. You get the idea that the resurrection is really essential. We've talked about that on, on Easter Sunday before, how essential the resurrection is. And so I won't, I won't repeat that now. But you know, there's one of, one of the things that's really interesting before we jump to 32 to 34 real briefly. Um, his, his format here is really intriguing because his format follows Jesus' format. In John 16, 5 through 11. If you want to flip there real quick. John 16. <clears throat> 5 through 11. I'll start before verse 5. But I, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you... And none of you asks me, where are you going? Because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled my heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now listen to this. If I go, I will send him to you. Verse 8. And when he comes, he will notice what Jesus says. He will convict the world concerning sin, okay, and righteousness and judgment. And then he goes on, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. The format is what? The format is and this is a crucial format that Jesus presents there that Paul is following. It is sin, 
Righteousness, judgment. Right? You see it there? Paul calls people to repentance regarding sin. He talks about righteousness, justice. And he talks about judgment. He will judge. You see the format? What Paul is simply doing is he's following Jesus' format. And he says that format that Jesus prophesies is going to happen, right? When the Spirit comes, this is what he's going to do in and through you. He is going to use you to be the proclaimer of what? Sin, righteousness, and judgment. There is the gospel. If our gospel doesn't robustly talk about all three of those, it's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. It just isn't. That's exactly where Paul goes. And it's interesting, Paul goes there dramatically and powerfully, bluntly, and what he does, because talking about sin has to be blunt. What he does, again, is he wields the authority of the scriptures and the truth of the scriptures and the proclamation in the declaration of all three. He simply declares it. That's our responsibility. Our responsibility is not to argue people into heaven, into a relationship with God. We cannot do that. Our responsibility is to, to declare sin, righteousness, judgment. That's what Spirit uses. That's exactly what the Spirit uses. Verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. Interesting, he establishes there are two groups of people at this point. Later on, he's going to stay in another verse, he's going to establish there's three. But at this point, there's established two. Some who mocked. Others said, we'll hear you again about this. Now, it's really easy to read in the statement, we'll hear you again about this, and think that's something really positive. But it is not. Do you remember what we saw already? Verse 21 now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. We'll hear more of this from you. Sound familiar? Yes. That's exactly the way the Athenians were. So some mock, what do they mock? Specifically, the resurrection. That was the deal breaker for them. The deal breaker was the resurrection. It is that to this day. Oftentimes, that is the issue. The resurrection. Others said, we'll hear again about this from you. Verse 33, immediately after, in effect, immediately after they say, we'll hear you again about this, so Paul went out from their midst. Which sounds innocent enough until you get to the beginning of, chapter, of the next chapter, chapter 18. But anyway, you'll notice, verse 34, but some men also, now we're introduced to a third group, some men also joined him and believed. So some men believed, and some doesn't mean many, but some believed, some men believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman, that was right, that's pretty scary, and a woman named Damaris, or Damaris, and others with them. So there were some that, that, that believed, including these two. Now, some argue they're probably husband and wife. Others say probably not. I don't have a clue. 
We're going to leave that as it is. But it is interesting, this Dionysius is really intriguing. Because you'll notice he said it says there the Areo Areopagite. You know what that means? He was one of the crowd there. You know, he was not one of the crowd. He was a leader. He was like a priest. And he was also, a, we know from history, he was also in the Athenian Senate that met. That met there. So he was a senator and a priest. We also know some other things about him. He studied astrology in Egypt. Kind of intriguing. There are some people, now this is now getting into mythology, but there are some people who believe he may very well be, have been one of the ones that helped to interpret the star, the star in the east as, as, a, as, a, um, as an astrologer. He may very well have been one, one of the ones that Herod called on. I'm not saying that's real or not. But what's interesting is here's a guy who's more than anybody else based in Athens. He is steeped in all of this. You get that? But what happened? The Spirit broke through. And when the Spirit broke through, here's a guy who had everything to lose. Did he not? He had everything to lose. But when the Spirit moved in his life, did it matter? Did it matter at all? No. All that mattered was Jesus. When the Spirit broke through, he steeped in all the religions. He's a priest. He's got a great position in the Senate that he will lose. He's trained in the schools of Egypt. And he does what? He throws it all away. For what? Because he counted, the, if I may quote, from Hebrews with regard to Moses, he found the wealth of Christ far greater, the riches of Christ far greater. That's what the Spirit does. And then, of course, we have Damaris as well. well what's interesting, we, we didn't read it, and we'll talk about it again next week, but what's really interesting is verse 1 of chapter 18, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. What? <laughs> There's a group of people who are saying, we want to hear about this again. And Paul does what? Hi. See ya. We've seen that before, haven't we? We've seen it before. His work is done, and he moves on. The point of the text is twofold. Again, there is no need for you to fear presenting the gospel. The text here tells us so clearly, lays it out so powerfully. This is the gospel. Take the message that Paul preaches in the belly of the beast. Right? He proclaims in the belly of the beast. Boldly, does he not? Directly from the scriptures. Come what may. This is what God says. Thus saith the Lord. You're doomed. You're sinners. You're idolaters. And here's why. And here's who God is. And what you're doing is absolutely abhorrent to him. 
and opposed to him. God's overlooked it at this point in time. But now he calls you to repent. And then he talks about Jesus, and judgment, and his resurrection. And he pulls all those stops, doesn't he? And it's all dripping, absolutely saturated with the truth of the scriptures. And that's all Paul gives them is the truth of the scriptures from beginning to end. And most reject. Be prepared. That's just the nature of it. It is. But some do repent. And some do believe. And if God begins the perfect work, he will continue it to the day of Jesus Christ. Amen? And secondly, as we start out, I told you the application already. Great application for understanding the gospel. But it's not just the gospel of the unsaved people. It's the gospel of us. You know what I need today? I need to hear this. Because you know what I struggle with? I struggle with wood and stone and silver and gold. You know that? I find it really tempting. And you know what? So do you. You still do, don't we? We absolutely do. And you know what rescues us from that? You know what? Let me say. Let me, just, let me change that. I know we're way over time. You know what doesn't rescue us from that? The law that says don't don't worship idols. I mean, it even sounds silly for me to say it. We all know that, right? How many of us know you should have no other gods before me? All of us. How many of us know you should have any graven images? All of us. How many of us have other gods before him? That gets painful. How many of us have idols? That gets really painful. You know what we need? We need to hear the gospel. In the contrast, as Paul did, this is the idols, and this is God. I need that today. You know what? You know how you get that? By going back into the scriptures. And reminding yourself of all these things that Paul talked about. Seeing it laid out in all of the color in the scriptures. When you start seeing it, you're going to start to hear by the Spirit. But now God commands all of us to repent. That's what we're going to hear. And to remember the resurrected Jesus. And remember that he's a just, righteous God. And he will judge. And that is because we know the fear of the Lord will persuade men. And because we're recipients of the love of God, we love. Right? Those are easy words without seeing it and being reminded of it and fellowshipping in it. Meditating in it. And it will transform us. The Spirit will transform us with those truths. And this is what we need. This is what we need. And can I just close with this? All the rest? All the rest? I mean, all the rest? It really is superstition. It really is. It's all superstition. 
Why? Because people who have known God and have been known by God, why would we be after superstition? Let's pray. Lord, help us. This is a reminder we desperately need. We desperately desperately need to be reminded again of the scriptures and more specifically the gospel, the truth of idolatry, the truth of the contrast with who you are. We desperately need to be reminded of the call to repentance. We desperately need to be reminded that there is no attraction, there is no value to darkness, but you are light. You are just, you are righteous. We desperately need to be reminded that you are the judge. And so, Lord, I pray that your spirit will work in us, reminding us of these things and draw us close. And actually draw us close. For your glory, in your name I pray. Amen.